Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. see you dude <laughs> you too man we haven't uh we we've lately we've gone through like we'll do a couple of in one week yeah and then have enough and then we miss a week and then we come back and we do two or three and then we miss a week and so it's like we're on a, every other week right now yeah kind of thing but it's it's it happens it's uh it's mostly good stuff you know like you've been yeah you've been well you had you had some illness and but you've been doing some cool things and i've been busy and, yeah. and you know i think the cool part about this this project podcast is um it affords us the ability to have that right you know it, it's not yeah. it's not like you're dependent upon an episode and i'm not dependent upon an episode but man i really enjoy them and i miss them when we don't but mm -hmm. i do appreciate the fact that you know we both tried to to maintain that one a week even if it's sometimes two a week or even if we jump three a week um yeah. just to stay on course but i don't know it i definitely think that i, I miss it for for a reason different than the publication of it. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of these conversations have sparked a lot of thought, a lot of continuing thought after the episodes. And, and sometimes it's given me reflection of myself, like, man, mm -hmm. you might be an idiot. You know, um, <laughs> I listened to every episode actually to kind of one audio one, like how's the flow of the conversation. And some of them, yeah. you know, I remember them really well. And it's like 10, 15 minutes into the, the podcast episode. I'm like, okay, everything's good. I remember this now it's good. And then some of them, I actually find myself not listening to myself as a listener, but like analyzing myself as an out of body example of myself. Mm, yeah. And yeah. It, it's been kind of neat because man, I'm opinionated. Um, I, I try to draw 
hard lines on the things I firmly believe. And I think sometimes the lines get drawn a little hard on things that I don't actually understand why I believe. Yeah. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I had a professor in college, pretty awesome. I mean, he's, he was a mentor. He ended up being my advisor and I did a series of plays for him as an actor in college. And the cool thing about him he was really out of the box. Um, he only confronted plays with very, very adult themed and not sexually, um, like right. adult topics. There was mm, one that I okay. remember in particular called pink toes. And this guy, his name was Dennis phenomenal actor. He's been on TV a little bit, but he, he was just kind of like in a re envisionment of his life. And he went back to college and meeting him, getting to act with him. And then, um, uh, the female that was his opposite. And a lot of Phil's plays were either monologue or two person or like three or four person tops. And they were all short acts, 15, 20 minutes, maybe. So he just sets. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very intimate settings. No, absolutely. Like you might have a, a clock on the wall or you might have a a bouquet of roses. Yeah. Bouquet, bouquet, Boutique, boutique. I know, say so. both. Yeah, I do too. I'm just feeling good. So we'll just roll with it. But you know, it was very simple set. And this particular subject in pink toes was written from the perspective of two perspectives, a truck driver and a young girl. And what happens is this young girl is walking down the road, hitchhiker or as a hitchhiker, truck driver picks her up, basically, you know, abuses her kind of thing. And it's, it's him in a jail cell giving his post-arrest interview as, as his monologue Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. and her monologue is post-death talking to her mother and dude, Interesting. that was the kind of format, you know, he would have these play nights that were eight, nine short plays long, mm-hmm. hour, hour and a half uh, total. And he'd have refreshments and he'd have conversation about the pieces. Like what moved you? What hurt you? What, what did you feel? Mm. Awesome. Awesome guy. And to revert that back to the class, I'll never forget, you know, um, coming out of high school, I'm going into college, I'm 18 years old. I remember literally my mindset on nine 11 and I still hold some of these same values, but the, the, the thinking was, was incorrect. Um, right after nine 11, I came home and I was like, mom, dad, I'm, I'm going right now. Mm-hmm. And my mom, her, lifelong dream for one of us was to be the first in our family to go to college. And I was already in college Mm. and she had worked at the college, um, for years and years and years retired from the college. But part of the, the deal for, uh, the employees at the time was as long as academic credibility was there, uh, there was no tuition for the student. Okay. So as, as her child, so yeah. I, I was kind of back against the wall with what I believed and what I, what she wanted and what she'd really worked her life for. So, you know, I calmed down a little bit, but in the argument, I remember telling my parents, I was like, if they strapped a thousand pound bomb to me and it killed 10,000 terrorists, I would be happy, you know? And like that fervor of, of Americanism is, is mm-hmm. still very deep within me, but I understand, um, that, that's a, that's a no win situation as far as right. it, it's just never a winning situation as an example. So we're sitting in class and we're talking about some things and he raises his hand or he, he makes a question. He said, if you're a white person and you hate black people, raise your hand. Nobody's hands went up. And he said, if you're a black person that hates white people, raise your hand. Nobody's hands went up. If you're a man that hates women, raise, raise your hand. If you're a woman that hates men, 
Mm-hmm. Nobody raised their hands. He's like, man, we have got a fucking utopia. Like <laughs> we are, we are the best of the best of the world that is to offer. And he said, let's cut the bullshit. Let's, let's make it a little less imposing. He said, how many of you believe in God? And a few hands went up and he said, okay, do you believe in God because you've invested in it and you've bled for it and you've read counter information and you've done all these things or do you do it because your mama told you to. And dude, that statement changed mm-hmm. my whole life. Like so many of the things that I believed and acted upon, um, carried with me the anger that I carried with me because of things that I believed and judgment of other people because of things mm-hmm. I believed with no teeth in, in any of the arguments. You know, I had never dissected myself. I'd never looked into the things that I was saying, believing, regurgitating. And it made me feel very, very small. And uh, that just painted a picture for the rest of my life. You know, it, it really did. It wasn't immediate as far as like I didn't go out and just become, you know, a better individual overnight. But I started to at least become a better thinker in regards to what I believe, what I feel, why yeah. I feel it, why I believe it. And, um, you know, that's carried me through today. I think it's <laughs> it's caused some uh, – psychosis at times because I overanalyze shit to the, to yeah. the nth degree for my belief, you know, like I don't want to die on a hill that I don't actually believe in, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just been an interesting turn looking at myself, looking at the world around me and kind of understanding that people are probably in this process of, they do believe things. They do have feelings on things. My concern is that we're not questioning these things. We're not asking why. And yeah, kind of because most times when you do, like you said, it would the response is falls apart after one question. Well, because there's no there's no actual like you said, teeth, but like there's no actual thinking behind anything that they're that that anyone's saying on, on either side. I remember a similar like kind of in the same the same vein as as your story I was in when in high school we had like this like AP government mm-hmm. class or whatever. And I honestly, like with most high school classes, honestly, I don't honestly remember most stuff <laughs> from the high school classes. Yeah. Uh, but we would do these, you'd get a, like a, either a partner or, or a group of three and you would do a debate yeah. on a, on a, you know, whatever topic against another group or another person. Mm. And I remember, um, like not really taking it super seriously, even though I like knew in the position that I was given on one of them, I remember it was like, this is actually the position that I believe. Yeah. Cause I remember some of them <clears throat> were forced to argue the opposite yep. position, which is good. Like, for you know, sure. Cause that makes you research. <clears throat> but I was given the one and I wasn't like taking it super seriously or whatever. Cause it was just like, this is kind of dumb. Like nobody takes these things seriously and the conversation doesn't actually do anything in this room. So I'm just like, whatever. And then, uh, I remember like three or four years later after I might've even been after I I graduated college when I really started getting into same thing. I had this, like this moment where I'm like, I'm going to actually learn Mm -hmm. about the things that I say I believe in and make sure I still do like, and, and, and do it for myself and make sure I still believe in these things that I claim to believe in. And I remember having this and I texted my best friend who was on my one debate team that, that day back in high school. And I texted him like, dude, if I went back with the knowledge I have right now or, and, and the confidence in, in the, not even just the confidence, but the ability to convey my thoughts 
and, and do so in a way that was coherent, right? Like I do right now based on the last handful of years of taking this learning and, and all this kind of introspection seriously, mm-hmm. I would have, I would have laid waste to that debate room. And like, that's like one of those things I'm like, I could have then, but it was just, I didn't care. Yeah. And I was like, you know, being 17 is just like, this is kind of dumb. Yeah. I, th- none of this really matters right now. But then even throughout college, I'm like, and in college was when I started to see a lot of the stuff that we see now being the norm mm. in the universities in terms of squashing dissident thoughts yeah. and, you know, kind of the more indoctrinating type of messaging that comes from a lot of universities. Like I was remember, I remember starting to see that in a couple of my classes back in like, you know, 2010, 11, like my freshman year of college. I'm like, what are you talking about? I can't say this. Right. You yeah. know? And, and that, like, I remember that being the first time I, I had the thought where, I need to get my, you know, what together so mm. I can, I can be the person that can speak these things clearly mm. and be able to answer questions. And, and, you know, in, in the, in the faith-based world, sort of like apologetics, sure, right? Like yep. be able to defend and ask questions and answer and go back and forth. And I remember that moment being like, there's a lot of people in this room that their, their whole worlds would fall apart with one question because they can't defend it. You know, there's no doubt about it. And I'll give you an interesting parallel. Um, the thought that I have, imagine jujitsu. Okay. Yeah. You have a, a, let's say a purple belt or a brown belt against a white belt and it's just no contest. It's not even, I don't care how big, bad, strong you think you are. And this is a quote from Mitch McElroy. He took a seminar in Louisville with him. And uh cool thing about him is he made a very, very, again, another one of those light bulb moments. He said, jujitsu is time travel. And mm-hmm. he said, the way that works is if you are a martial student against an instinctive opponent, you will always be ahead of their next move. So it is mm-hmm. literal in the moment time travel because you're controlling the flow and the speed and the movement of time against their reaction to your timing. So that was a pretty cool moment for me to kind of hear that. But if you apply that to conversation or you apply that to communication at any level, and especially in the debate world, you have somebody who does like what we do. We talk a lot. We're on a podcast a lot. We think a lot on our feet. We think a lot uh, beyond the interview because you don't want to sound like an idiot when you're speaking. Right. When you get into a conversation with an untrained speaker, with an untrained thinker, with an untrained debater. Well, every single time that that has happened in my life where the debate at my level has felt like I'm talking just right now, asking questions, pointing out ideas. Why are you, why are you so upset? Why are you attacking me? Well, I'm I'm not, I'm, I'm asking very fundamental questions relative to the, the, the beliefs you're stating. Like, I don't want to argue if you can believe it or not. I just want to understand why you believe it. And man, they fall apart. They absolutely yeah. fall apart. And I think that brings us to a little bit what we wanted to talk about today is a lot of people don't even know why they're doing the things that they're doing. And mm. you have this heightened conversation piece of imposter syndrome or people, you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing. I understand the concept. I understand the idea behind it. You know, if you want to be something, you have to do those things. You have to try to emulate those things at that level. I get it. But I think to step a little bit forward and then come back, a lot of people are just hitting the wall 
of I'm doing all these things. I'm doing everything that all these people tell me I should be doing. I'm up at 4.30. I'm journaling. I'm doing the ice baths. I'm training. I'm taking jiu-jitsu. I'm on and on and on. The list of things to be a man. And I think the good thing about this podcast, if a, if a female listens to it, it might give some insight to the way that men think. But I am definitely yeah. not ever speaking to women on this podcast as a guidebook. It's it's literally yeah. you and I talking about our shit. And mm-hmm. I think that we've found that a lot of guys relate to that. Um, so this might be some understanding point for a woman. But a lot of guys, a lot of guys uh, message me. And I know they talk to you in your group about the pressures of everything that they're being told to do, the impossibility of maintaining all those things to do, and then feeling mm-hmm. like they're getting no closer to their end goal of actually being a good man or a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your feeling on that? And what do you think that I think as humans, the imposter syndrome is just a natural part of our existence. You know, until you, until you really been validated, you're never sure. Yeah. But everybody's trying to be validated. Everybody is trying to be, um, a somebody or around a quote unquote somebody. Um, And I understand there's a sense of irony in having a podcast. Like you and I are not deaf to that idea, but at the same time, I think it becomes a very different approach. And we've talked about it at different levels when people start assuming, Oh, because my life is good right now after 25 years or 30 years on this earth, I am now the expert on life. And the thing about it is at 30 years old, my life looked like, oh, potential world champion powerlifter, healthy knees, you know, making (laughs) money hand over fist. And at 32, I was on my back for the next four years, 19 times for a month at a time after every surgery Um, to the point that I put a pistol in my mouth in 2016, two years after my injury. So the book that I wrote, the cube book that I wrote when I was on top of the world and the the, the brashness and a little bit of the bravado that I exposed in that book, one was rooted in insecurity of self. You know, I had to speak that way, think that way to believe that way. Right. But also it was, it reconfirmed or redirected any misbelief from the outside about who I was. I had mm-hmm. to make people believe that I was tough and that I was a badass because I didn't believe that I was, you know, And I felt that throughout the experience of it. I felt that I was out of balance with myself. And then after the fall, and this is what I don't think a lot of people experience in their own lives, is I had a literal fall from grace, Uh, you know, broke my legs. Yeah. And on the heels of that, all of that bravado, all of that tough talk, all of that Billy Badass 10 feet tall and bulletproof was gone. Mm -hmm. I was not that man. I was, you know, it's just like... uh, we may not kill him, but we'll prove that he can bleed in 300 when he, you know, right. when he cuts Xerxes. Yep. Only, you know, God can't bleed. And yep. I think to borrow from that, I thought I was untouchable. I thought I was unbreakable. Um, and I learned very, very harshly that I wasn't. Now, I think the ramifications for a lot of men that we talk to, consequences aren't so dire, but they find themselves in situations that, check those boxes of success, check those boxes of I'm doing something, I'm doing the right things. Mm-hmm. And they still have that feeling. Yeah. Where do you think that's rooted inside of those people? And do you think that there is a one size fits all program of discipline to catalyst as a catalyst for yeah. people to move forward? So 
I think the a lot of that that feeling or that experience when I'll just use the example. So I remember, and it was a really popular for the weekend talking point last year at Winterstrong. Yep, like that was kind of the thing where everybody, you know, everybody was told there's way cooler people in this room than you. Yeah, like yeah. everybody yeah. was told that, and that's the truth. Like no matter how awesome you are, there's somebody that's cooler in that room. Sure, that at something, and so I understood that, but I never necessarily felt the imposter part of like, I shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a confidence, like, like, like an arrogant type of statement, but I'm like, look, I've built good relationships with people that I consider friends and then wanted me to come hang out. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and we're always talking about the, the, the value that you can bring to communities. And I think a lot of people see things like this and they have this feeling because it's the comparison game. Mm -hmm. Like it's always that like they don't believe that they should be in these situations because they're comparing the person that's ahead of them in that same situation. Like, well, if he's here, I'm not as good as him. Why am I here? Right. Like rather than looking at what what am I specifically bringing to this table that is of value, whether it's like a skill or or something or maybe it's just like you're a good friend and we enjoy having you around to talk to mm. like there's, you know. It, it, there's not like a tangible exchange of something that is your ticket in. Right. Like I think that is where a lot of people in these, in those types of situations try to do something to get in. Yeah. Well, right. Because they're thinking it's like, I, I have to do this thing or, or, or bring this specific skill or this trade or this, yeah. this thing to get into this club. Yep. Right. And it's like, I'm always trying to, to get into the club by doing something rather than how we've talked about it several times, like flip it around and turn it inward on yourself, on your family and like just enhance the crap out of that. Yeah. Like, and then that ripple effect outwards, you'll, you'll get that. Not, and not that it's even about recognition to a degree, but since we're talking about like getting into these levels of success, and trying to understand, do I belong here or not? I mean, I've been in plenty of rooms where I've sat at tables with people and I'm like, okay, this is pretty cool. Right? Yeah. Like, and that's how I always look at it. Like there's some hitters yeah. here and like, and I'm actually talking about real stuff. Like I'm talking business with people who are literal, like, like a literal billionaire. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's, that's a pretty cool experience. Right. And so I'm like, well, I'm, I am so far away from even that, a one percent financial. What is a billion dollars? level of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is that a real, exactly. Is that a real thing? What do you mean a billion? <laughs> like I can't even can't even fathom that number. Yeah, for sure. And, and but those kind of conversations. But it's 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 more of a. I think it happens because we're constant. And you said it before we we hopped on. We're constantly exposed to what everybody else is doing all the time. Mm -hmm. Like we're always seeing what everyone else is doing. Yep. And that, and, and there's the phrase that comparison is the thief of joy. Mm -hmm. And, and even though the things in your own life might be going super well, right. I remember like people saying like, man, I, I was doing really great. And I thought I was on a, on the right track. And then I show up to this place. I'm like, dang, I'm way not where I need to be. And there's something there where you should still have things to strive for yes, and have, and have those people that are farther along the path than you as motivation or to try and see what's possible. Yeah. Right. But 
to say just because they're here, I'm, I'm a failure if I'm not what they are. Yeah. Like that's where I think it really starts to mess with guys' minds. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do. And I think that you touched on a really good point that is a clarification for people that might be on the fence of imposter syndrome or feeling like they don't belong. Yeah. The thing that I love that you, you mentioned, you said, I look around and it's like, no, I've built a successful training business. I've been a coach. I've, I've got successful men's groups. You'd never once, never, ever, ever once, once, geez, I sound like my papa. Uh, <laughs> he never, ever once uh, mentioned anything about your social media. You mentioned tangible, markable things that you have achieved. And I think that might be a flip-flop point for the world today because a lot of the people that you're referring to, um, I can think of a, a couple guys in that B category of, of money wealth yeah. that come to winter strong. Uh, there's several in the M category that come to winter strong. Yeah. And the cool thing about those people, you don't become a millionaire or a billionaire 15 years ago because of crazy video editing. You had to right. do some shit and yeah. that's, that's the tier of those people. <clears throat> right. So I think there is, there are certain scenarios like maybe a winter strong where the brunt, I won't say all there's some, there's some people there that have, have definitely just made their name on the internet and through crafty yeah. media, media and whatnot, not knocking that necessarily, but right. I think guy sitting on the couch looking at, okay, here's a person with 200,000 followers that does really cool shit all the time. And here's a guy with a billion dollars. Is it easier for me to craft my my social media to get two hundred thousand followers, or to build a business that makes a billion dollars? And what is the what is my worth, like right. non monetary worth, after I do those two things? And I mm. think somebody who becomes successful in business has to craft and build so many components to who they are in that process. Yeah, um, I think that when you get to that point, when you become that billionaire that might be the time that you you fall apart because you've done everything you've ever wanted to do. You have the capacity now to do anything and everything that you ever want to do. How do you wake up with discipline then? That's a question. You look at somebody else on the other side that it's like, holy shit, I've got all these millions of views on every single video. What is the next thing that I have to make in the next thing? So that person sitting there starts to look at those two people and just like, okay, if I do these things, that's the invite. If I do these right. cool videos, that's my invite. If I, if I hang out with the right people, that's my invite. If I show mm -hmm. that I'm at all the right places, that's my invite to the next thing and the next thing. And I question, and I've, I've quoted this before, or I've said this as a quote before, you know, don't just come to the table for the food, bring mm -hmm. some food to share so I can eat too, you know? Yep. And that's the problem with a lot of this uh, current culture where there's no exchange. There's just, I'm here. Aren't you happy? Like I'm here, that's enough because I'm Brandon Lilly. You know, that type of mindset is pervasive mm -hmm. and it's invasive. Um, I'm curious about helping men differentiate between those two points. Like mm. you start a business, you make, let's, let's just say you make enough money to bump your income 50%. Mm -hmm. That is attainable. That is within grasp of so many people. Um, and that is sustainable. Yeah. You may work 50 years and never become a billionaire. You may work 50 years and fail at every single thing you do, but there will be lessons in there. There will be values in there. And I think if you're shooting for a billion dollars, you'll probably land at a million 
you know, like that kind of deal. Um, But I just wonder how we can help people see that the value is not in the billion dollars. The value is not in the 200,000 followers. The value is in who you become in those pursuits. And if you're not actually changing or actualizing the things that, that you want to become, you're only becoming what other people tell you to become. I think you're going to end a lot up, end up with a lot of the same frustrations, sadness, uh, disappointment, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of, you know, not no, no worth. Um, and I think it's a tricky thing to navigate, to help people find the path to who do I want to be and how do I become that and answer it truthfully, not do I want to be like Bert Soren? Do I want to be like Josh Smith or John Dudley or Cam Haynes? Do I want to be those guys or do I want to look at how they do everything and emulate the how, you know, they get up early. Okay, great. Is four 30 my early? Or six thirty, a more accommodating early to my life, to my schedule, to those things. Yeah, I don't know that enough people are taking that second step. And if we think about it, the, the analogy that came to mind was like, I'll, I'll make a music analogy, right? Good, obviously. And so, when I'm sure you were the same, and I still do have these like just midday sort of dreams or like daydreams and fantasies in my head of being like the rock star, right? Yeah. Like I'll hear a song. I'm like, dude, this would be so rad to play this song live and yeah. all this kind of stuff. But when you're, when you're young and you're trying to, and, and you have that dream of being p- playing in front of tens of thousands of people playing at Wembley, like all this stuff, just ripping it on a stage. You're not dreaming about being that famous playing somebody else's songs. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's because I want to have the songs that I wrote be that good to where I can do this. So like nobody wants to be, the world's most famous cover band. Right. You know? And so like, even though that might be super fun. Kiss with three like, S's. Just, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but when you look at it from that perspective, it's the same. We do that. We tend to do it in business. Yeah. Or like in anything else. It's like, well, I'm trying to do exactly what he does to get that outcome. Cause I want his life. Yeah. But it's like, you can take those lessons without taking like, just cop, like using the template that, that Josh Smith did or whatever to build MKC. Yeah. Right. Like, Nobody's going to do it the way Josh did. No. Because nobody else is Josh. Right. Nobody like, else he's the only one that could have done it that way. The youngest blade master, or bladesmith, master bladesmith ever, 19 years old, uh, given that distinction and, and notoriety. And, and even yeah. then, even then, to Josh's credit, I don't remember the years. It's at least 20, I know, um, that he owned the title to Montana Knife Company. He said he bought it in like 2002 or something Yeah, yeah. Like it's, that. it's been um, about 20 yeah. years. And it took... Yeah you know, 18, 19 years to become a reality. That Mm -hmm. is powerful belief and vision. That is not just, Oh my God, this name is available. This company trademark is available. Okay. Now I'm just going to start pumping out knives. No, he had to be a master Smith at an elite level building $5,000, $10,000 knives for, I don't remember who it was a Prince or a shake or somebody over in the middle East. Mm -hmm. I mean, that level of of quality for somebody who has the money to buy anything in the world and they're buying yours. Now that's the problem is that we don't have enough people making high end things and then figuring out how to not reduce, but bring that down to a volume measure. And that's what Josh has done so successfully is that he has taken high, high quality bladesmithing, figured out how, okay, how can we make something that's tough, light, dependable, sharpenable, and build a community around that. 
he already knew how to build the knives. He already knew how to make fantastic knives. The hard thing in that point was building a community of belief around something that he already did very, very well. What I'm seeing a lot of, on the other side now, and no fault for anyone making knife. I love making knives. I have a hard time watching people want to be a knife maker because that is the chic thing right now. Now it's like the cool thing. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, dude, you know, you can look at me and call me a cliche for all the things that I do. I do jujitsu. I shoot bows. I do all, like I am a carbon <laughs> copy, but those things have been aspects of my life since I was a kid. Um, right. Not necessarily jujitsu, but right. I took martial arts when I was a kid uh, briefly. So it was always an interest of mine, but they just have different forms now and I have different accessibility now. Yeah. I think that too many times we're trying to hit the home run with our ideas instead of just getting singles and movers and runners around. You know, yeah. that's, that's what successful business is. Very, very few people have the, the light bulb idea that becomes the, the million dollar idea overnight. Even, even some of the guys, like the ShamWow guy, I watched a, a documentary on that dude. It took him like 37 tries to get yeah. the product to where it was freaking Colonel Sanders. He was like 68 years old when he established his famous recipe. So yeah. these are, those are the people that motivate me a lot more than, Oh my God, I, I started this business and now I'm a $5 million a year. Like that's amazing. But if it took you two years to do it, is it sustainable for 20? Is it, you know, like, is this your passion or did you just look at it and say, yeah. I want to make money. And those types of people are very cool. That's a very successful endeavor to just make money. But I tend to gravitate more towards people that, man, I wish I could make money with my purpose. I wish I could make money with my skill set. And yeah. um, I just think that a lot of people are struggling where to put their feet, you know, as yeah. on this journey. Like, what's the next step? What's the next step? How do I find my own path? Maybe, and I think that's a cool way to put it too. When you're walking through the woods, there's a big main trail usually that all the animals take, and then there's side trails. Well, I think yep. sometimes you need to weave back on the main trail. Am I on the right path? Yeah. Am I doing the right things? And then weave back on your own. It's not like still heading the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I don't, I don't know what the piece of advice that I would give people to to help them understand that because man, it's without my injury, I would never think the way that I think. Without the use of very, very uh, guided endeavors into psychedelics. I don't think I would see the world or myself the same. I think it took all of that to, to break the ego that I had built of who I was as a man, because who I was as a man was a projection. And then I was trying to live the reflection. You know, I was trying to, yeah. to live like, you know, it's like macho man, savage or a Hulk Hogan without yeah. every intention. You know, it's Terry Boella. But it's he's Hulk Hogan everywhere he goes. And that became the reality for me was I, I can remember you're not Brandon Lilly. Oh, you're Brandon Lilly, the power lifter. Right. Or oh, dude, you're that strong guy, Brandon Lilly, right? And man, when somebody didn't say that, I was like, I am the strong guy, you know this, right? I am the right. power lifter, Brandon Lilly. You know? Right. So helping just the guy get to a point where he's he's like, This is who I am. And I'm okay with that. Now, what do I do with it? What do people do with that? What do people do when they ask that fundamental question of who I am or who am I? It's going to cause a lot of, and I don't like to even do the thing where you spend all that time just looking at all the things you've done. Yeah. Right. Like there's no, like at, at a certain point, there's no point right. to that. And so you have to, you have to be 
introspective for a little bit to say, what are the, like this, how we started this conversation? What are the things that I actually believe? Mm-hmm. And do I actually believe those things? Yep. Like test them, right? Put yourself in the positions to test whether or not this is actually something that I want to, like you, like, like we said, like die on this hill for. Right. And if it's not, there's a lot of action that needs to take place. And if there, if there is, there's a lot of action that needs to take place. Cause now you have that main trail direction, right? Like, you know, if these are all my core beliefs and this is how I need to, like, this is the person that I am and I'm good with this. And this is who I know I am. I've got my main trail now. Yeah. You know? And so that, that will in itself taking that time. And this is what, you know, like, this is why we talk about journaling as much as we do. Mm-hmm. Not that that's like the be all end all, but as a tool, that's super helpful for answering a lot of these questions to a degree, mm-hmm. right? And so once you get to that point, you have that main trail. This is, you know, I, I, I had a, a podcast. This actually was the one from this week with yeah. uh, with Matt Reynolds. We were talking about like, dude, just go now take the step, like start walking down the trail and you'll refine and you'll fl- like, you might have to take that side, you know, that side trail that loops way around and then comes back, but you can't just stand in that spot. Yeah. Because you're never going to refine any of those skills. You're never going to uh, advance any farther because you're worried about, well, I got. what am I going to do before? I need to get everything ready before I take that first step. Yeah. You know, and the, he, he, Matt used the great example because he's talking about coffee. He's like, dude, I brought this, I bought this super expensive coffee machine. He's like, I wasn't going to watch a thousand YouTube videos on how to make great coffee out of it before I even did. He's like, I opened it and I made one and it was terrible. Yeah. And he's like, it took me a while to learn out how to use the machine to make a really good one for that machine. And that's how you have to do it. So I think the, the, when we're going back to this imposter thing and the comparison, we're always looking at the the final product or the end result of all these people Mm -hmm. without realizing like with Josh, like he didn't, make mass production knives until two years ago. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he owned the domain Montana knife company for 20 years Yeah, and then was a lineman. Yeah. Like, you know, and did, and did another job for 15 years before he jumped in and took this thing all the way, but he was still working on his craft throughout that entire time, getting better, understanding all of the back end stuff that goes along with making and selling high end knives, like building that skill set. So then he wasn't just standing in that spot at the beginning of the trail. Yeah. Well, for that long, you know, I'll tell you something else too, that you mentioned there is, is the side hustle or the main job for your side hustle. A lot of people have this idea that you just, oh man, I'm going to quit my job, move my family or move across country and start a t-shirt business. And I'm going to start making millions or whatever it is. I was looking at a rapper guy goes by the name of T Grizzly. Um, I like that name. He's a, he's a, he's a rapper. I, I don't know too much about him. I just saw his story. But he is making pretty good money in the rap business. He's still a waiter at a very high-end restaurant. And uh, I think it's oh, a, really? in, in L.A. He, he works like two or three jobs outside of the rap game. And he was crazy. And the thing about him, and I don't know if this is true or not. Like I said, I've read one article and heard maybe two songs of his. Um, yeah. Not particularly a fan of him as a, as a musician, but I'm a fan of this message. He said, yeah. the songs I wrote, was when I was working these hustles to live just because Mm. they're hits doesn't mean I'm not going to be starving next week, you know? And he was like, I can get all this money and I can blow all this money and I can have all these women and I can have all these cars and this house and this and this and this, but then I got to write another song and then I got to write another song and another song and I got to keep being relevant. He said, I go to work, I get paid. 
period. My -hmm. kids are going to eat. I'm going to eat. And if this side hustle takes off and then I don't have to worry about money one day. Okay, good. But I'm still worried as hell out of money right now. Yeah. You know, and that's a pretty cool thing for a kid that's 19, 20 years old, probably got every music producer or whatever in his face saying, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll give you this. He's like, no, I got to work a shift tonight. You know, yeah. I just don't think there are enough young people that are looking at, and this, this might take 20 years and it might take two or three jobs at a time to support that extracurricular hobby. But how are you going to do it if you don't, Right. you know, uh, we, it's the long-term vision. <laughs> yes. And I think that too many times, well, we're just a hack system. You know, yeah. I know you're a Tim Ferriss guy. That's my only gripe about Tim, Tim Ferriss. <laughs> He's very happy. He is the hack guy. And I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't fault people for finding smarter ways to operate. Yeah. But when you are constantly trying to circumnavigate the best way to do things and think that you can right. find a better way, that is not success. That is shortcutting. Right. That is shortcutting yourself, shortcutting your potential. But um, I just don't know that we're instilling Definitely, if you look at the the evidence based on men our age, I think that is a lacking point is that yeah. the people that are at the top telling you quit your job, leave your wife, move across country, start a business are not adding into the fact that, well, before the internet, it took me 15 years to build this business so I could sit on the internet and tell you to buy my program. <laughs> you know, um, they didn't become millionaires overnight, but right. they're not saying that. They're not telling you about, yeah. I mean- now you see it like with the Jeff Bezos and the Bill Gates and the, the Musk meme where it's like, this is where Amazon started. This is where Microsoft started. Yeah. You'll see it in that context. But I think a lot of these guys that are, that are sitting on top of the, the throne at the moment are failing to explain dreams don't just happen because you chase them. You have to have a life in, in absence of your dreams. And not to say that that's without them. That is just to say you have to feed your kids. You have to put them to bed. You have to coach. You have to be a husband. All these things. And then once those things are done, then you work on your hobby. That's why you have those midnight oils, the two o'clock in the morning, sitting up, typing on your computer, trying to make it go. It it just, the psychology of people in this direction is is really bothersome to me. Yeah. You know, there's a... I I was just going to say, I think that we've lied to ourselves into thinking that we are all special, that we are all going to get our dreams, that we are all going to have everything that we want. How do you, how do you break the imposter syndrome mold? How do you get to a point where it's like, man, I did not get that thing that I wanted, but holy shit, my life is still pretty good because Mm -hmm. that is a curse. That is a curse word or a curse phrase in this society. My life is pretty good is yeah. like, oh, then you don't want it bad enough or you're just fucking yeah. comfortable. Well, you piece of shit, you're living in a mansion, you're driving a Rolls Royce or you're driving a Lamborghini or you've got one of those G-Wagons from Mercedes. You got pedicures and manicures and you get your hair cut for $500. Don't tell me you're not living comfortably. Well, this is chosen discomfort. Okay, bro. Like, <laughs> right. it's not the same as like you're living in the street. Okay, don't give me right. that bullshit. But people believe it. Yeah. People believe that these morons uh, that get up there and talk like that are living this like hard-nosed, challenged existence. Why do they show you the mansion? Why do they show you the fancy cars and the swimming pools and the women and all this other stuff? Because they have to make you believe that that is worth yeah. it. You look at the people that I, you know, I, I would assume that the people that you admire, 
it's not Dan Bilzerian. Like I do not want that lifestyle. I don't want 500 women around me. I don't want a house in every coast or any, whatever it is. Like I don't see the appeal and I don't understand why people are chasing it because it's not sustainable. You know, it's not a sustainable thing. And are any of those women there because Dan's a nice guy, (laughs) right? Is it, are they there because he's a good guy or are they there because he has money and drugs and he had, and it's the place to be, it's the photo to be in. Right. Yeah. Where are the people that are just living really good, solid lives that don't have to tell you how much money they might, they make, they don't have to show you that they live in a mansion. Where are they at? And why aren't they telling men how to live a little better? Yeah. You know, there was a, he, he was actually, he coached me for a little while, um, a couple years back leading up to that first jujitsu competition that I did. Um, John Danaher. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I would have done way better had he, I take it back. Uh, but, uh, no, James, his name's James Fuller Mm -hmm. and he does all the old time strongman stuff. Right. And he, and when I talked to him for, for the podcast, he, he was great because he was talking about the the symbiotic relationship of that style of training and grappling. Because mm-hmm. he's like, all these guys back in the early uh, 20th century, late 19th century, they were all wrestlers. That's why on they top train. Of doing all this. That's why they train. Yeah. And so he's like, this, the style that we're building strength through mobility, anyways, all this stuff. So I'm like, I worked with him for a while and I got to know him. And he's like, one of the most brilliant men in terms of training mm-hmm. I've ever talked to. Yeah. Like, and, and from, and from a historical, like he's like a historian right? when it comes to this stuff too. So he's got that type of knowledge. Then he's got the actual coaching and technical knowledge on top of it. Yep. And it's, and he's made, and he's a, his, his full-time gig is to work maintenance at like these rest stops on overpasses on the freeway. Mm-hmm. That's his full-time That's gig. That's awesome. And I asked him, like, do you do, like, how many, do you do a lot of coaching and stuff? He's like, yeah, he's like, I have a handful. He's like, I'm pretty picky about people I bring on. And uh, I'm like, so so how come you're still doing this, if you don't mind me asking? He goes, I just need something that pays the bills, that I can do something during the day that's not, it's kind of mindless. I can just go in and do my task, and I can use my brain power to think about training. Yeah. And get better in my, he's like, when I'm, when I'm doing stuff throughout the day, he's like, my mind is thinking about these training concepts or how I'm going to apply this to the people that I coach. So I need a job that can, that doesn't require a lot of that type of brain power. Cause I like to save it yeah. for my thing over here. Yep. And I'm like, that's the freaking coolest thing ever. Like this dude could be, I mean, at the top of the coaching mountain mm-hmm. in terms of business, Yep. right? Like he could be just, I mean, he could have coaches working under him. He could have this massive empire of coaching, bringing this old style of training back yeah right because it's awesome mm-hmm. and he's like no man i just like to do my thing and i'll, I'll coach people that want to work with me and uh and I'll, I'll help them best i can i'll give them great training programs i'll coach him he's like i just like to do this thing over here because it, it pays my bills and it keeps me keeps me focused i'm like dude that is the freaking coolest thing ever i agree have you seen the documentary pulling john no john berzing he was a he was an arm wrestler like he's like the gordon well gordon ryan is like the john of okay like Undefe- like 20 something years undefeated, not like 60, 70 matches, like 20 wow. years. And he's just, he's just a short dude. Um, got a good stocky build, but he's a, a airplane mechanic for Delta. And the reason okay. he took that job was because you get free flights and he couldn't afford to go to the competitions as a young arm wrestler. Yeah. So he took that job and guess what? He becomes a foreman on it. He's making 
probably 150, 200 grand a year as a, as a flight mechanic. And, um, that is what allowed, and he still does it to this day. He's still, yeah. I mean, he may be retired now. The documentary is a decade old or so, but it's, it's okay. very, very good. And it shows you, um, you, you know, a very real look at a lot of these niche, niche sports and yeah. their champions, you know, without Gordon Ryan, who are the, I mean, there's maybe 10, 10 guys in jujitsu worldwide that are because of on the mat performance can make a living. Um, right. The peripheral stuff is how I made money in powerlifting. It was never because I got paid at meets. It was the coaching, it was right. the seminars, it was the instructionals, it was whatever it was. It was programs. Yeah. So I was always working a side hustle. The yeah. even though the even though the the money maker was my hobby, I had to make the work come from the hobby. And right. and I found too at times, you know, I was thinking about some of the writers that I love and sadly they all committed suicide. <laughs> but one of the things that I heard, um, it might've been a, a auto, it might've been a biographer about Hemingway, but he was okay. like, the reason that he went mad is that the words were still inside and he couldn't get them out. Mm-hmm. And the thing I believe that so many people think of, like if I went out here and shot a thousand arrows a day to become the best archer, would I become the best archer in the world? There's no right. guarantee or promise of that. At some point, there's probably going to be diminishing point of returns, you right. know? So when you have these hobbies, when you have these things that you're excited about, I do agree with what your coach said. You have to step away from them or that fire burns out. That's why yeah. burnout is such a common thing right now because totally. you see so many people go so hard because they are so, it's just like the guy with his last dollar buying a lottery ticket. Like this is yeah. the one, this is the thing. And they think that they found they found it, and maybe they did, but they ruin it because they think it has to become a thing, a legitimized thing. Now, it can't it can't have iterations and evolutions and grow. And then, before you know, I don't remember who said it, but it might have been Polaniak. But he was like, uh, "If you have an idea, protect it." He said, "Hold mm-hmm. it close to your chest, breathe." No, it was McCarthy. He's like, "An idea just has to be an ember, and you have to be mm-hmm. the breath." you know, and like protect that, do not share it and don't expose it before it's a flame. You know, yeah. it's just a, it's just a toasting ember right now. And we have to build that out and build that out and build that out. And unfortunately, most people don't have $2 million sitting in the bank that they can just take an exodus from life and work on this project. Right. I think yep. if people would just take a step back and say, you know what, this is the thing I want to make it so good. So, so good that when it does get that light, when it does catch flame, it's infallible, you know? And that was Jordan Peterson's argument for his book, taking 10, 12 years to write. He said he literally scrutinized every word of every sentence. And he said to a point of psychosis, but that book stands pretty strong. You know, it's, it's a pretty good Testament to that model, I think. And, you know, a lot of people run when they hear Jordan Peterson these days, which is insane to me. I I don't agree with everything Mm -hmm. he says, but to just, cast the baby out with the bathwater is insane but i do wish that there was a little bit more of that build a life build your life through the things that you do don't build your life around the things that you do mm-hmm. you know that's that's mm-hmm. that's that has been a more enjoyable sustainable model for at least a person like me who, who i've told you i struggle with the comparison i struggle with competition yeah. to the point that i make personal relationships competitive you know, and I look back at, 
why does this person like them more than me? Or why does this person uh, prefer them? You know, those kind of things. Yeah. It's all detrimental. If somebody, if somebody doesn't get you, that's just, that's just fine. It doesn't have to be any other way. But I think when we keep trying to force through the same doors because it's the right person that you're supposed to be around or it's the right place that you're supposed to be, you lose that. You lose that that individuality because you probably compromise something to get in the door. Well, not only that, but that's obvious to everybody else. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like how many, how, I mean, it's so obvious when you meet somebody who that, where that is the goal. Yeah. Like if the goal is just to be there, you can pick that out. Yeah. You can sniff that out so fast. Yeah. And there's a, and there's so much of that because, and to, to your point about the, like the idea of being the ember you got to protect. I think part of it is because so many people are like the second they've got a modicum of a, of a thought. Mm-hmm. It's like, I got to tell everybody about this. Yeah. I got, you know, this is the thing I'm doing now. Yep. And it's like, you, I mean, I'm all for, doing the ready, fire, aim approach once you've got something that you can begin to refine. Yeah. Right. But the second that there's something that you're, it, cause it's just attention seeking. Yeah. It's like, Hey, I've got this new thing now. This is what, this is what I'm doing. Yep. Come follow me. Well, right. This come, it, come see what's going on. It's like the unintentional LARP, right? Yeah. Like there, you know, and I would, I could definitely look at my Instagram and point the finger and say that that dude's a LARP, you know, I like to and, and I like to try new things. I like to experience new things. I like to try iterations of things I'm already doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I am playing a role of pursuing my life. If you want to say that's LARPing, fine. To me, I'm not profiting from it. I'm not selling yeah. you on what I'm doing. That's where it becomes problematic to me. It's like, oh, jujitsu's hot. Well, I'm doing jujitsu now. Now here's my yeah. jujitsu training model. Now here's this and here's this and this. Oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah. now I'm in the compound archery. So here's my compound archery training model. Here's my t-shirt about shooting compound archery. Here's my video program about, you know, it just, when it becomes that, that, that just might as well be a skunk to me. It's just the finding the, it's, it's the reason it's, it's the TikTok effect. Sure. It's finding the trending sound Yep. and making your own version of that video. So it gets plugged into the explore page yeah. where everybody's going to see it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there's. There's no there there. <laughs> no. Well, and I think, you know, maybe to kind of shift away from this topic after nearly an hour, you know, I'll just kind of close out for anybody that is just looking for confirmation that it doesn't always work to be that pointed missile. You know, it's, it's hmm. success is not straight flight. It's usually a circle, right? You know, you're going to have to go around and around the same circle to find different points that you miss, different points that you can build on. But I think I would encourage anybody to start with, I mean, this is, this is what I had on a psychedelic trip one time. If I could go back to the first thing, really bad thing I remember happened to me was like eight years old, seven years old. And well, six years old, um, there was an incident that kind of shifted the dynamic with me and my parents because, um, I was accused of a lie. I didn't, I didn't lie about and it was in a scenario where there was a there was a teacher type figure that told my parents I was involved in something that I wasn't. Mm. And I remember, you know, going through and like begging them to believe me because I could feel like I felt the weight of their disappointment. And I was so upset by it. And I was like trying I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I swear I didn't do it. And I got, you know, I got the spanking, you know. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, 
I looked at my life and I was like, well, if the truth gets your ass busted, just tell them what they want to hear, you know? And as a six-year-old, that's probably a very damaging effect. And that, that type of mentality, whether it was um, just saying what needed to be said to get out of a situation or lies by omission or whatever it was, haunted me for years and years and years because I thought that was the modus operandi of, you know, staying out of trouble, you know? So right. I think that a lot of people can fall into patterns because of our past, because of experiences that we felt because of all these things that can dictate what we do now. Um, so you have to go back to that. Like before I was hurt, before somebody changed the way that I looked at myself, before somebody changed how I looked at the world around me, what did I want to be? Like, what did I think was good? Mm. Because I remember, you know, as a kid being very, very small and thinking, man, I want to be an army man or I want to be an astronaut or a fireman. Okay, that may not be what I want to be now, but that imagination aspect of life. And I think what happens, you know, whether you want to say it as a, as a study effect of the pineal gland, you know, they talk mm -hmm. about how the pineal gland in America is one of the smallest, you know, because even though this is the land of hopes and dreams, those dreams get squashed pretty early. You know, the creativity yeah. gets squashed out of you fairly early because you're forced to learn what they want you to learn. And I think that you need to go back and start decluttering some of that effect. Like, why do I, it all goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Why do I believe the things that I do? Why do I act the yeah. way that I do? Why do I engage with women the way that I do? Why do I do these things well, the way that I do? And I like to play that game on anything. I call it the seven whys. Mm. Well, why am I doing this? Well, it feels good. Okay. That's not good enough. What's the next why? And if I can't, if I get to five, I'm probably justifying why I, I want to do it. If I can get yeah. to seven, I move now. If I can tell you seven whys of, of an action, it's undeniable. Yeah. If you're at one why, well, it's going to get me more followers. That is not enough. It is going to make me a little more money. That is not enough. It's going to make me a better person. Okay, we're getting there. It's going to benefit my family. Okay, this is a little deeper water. This is going to bring me closer to God maybe, or this is going to bring me closer to uh, a, a long-driven goal. Okay, now we're at four. What's five? What's the next thing? This is a promise I made somebody that I would see it through. We got to go. And if there's mm. two more, it's undeniable go. It's absolutely have to go. But if yeah. I get to that three, four range, I still have to find another reason to do it. You know, like this is probably just masturbatory satisfaction at, at one, two, and three. At four, five, and six, it's probably, you know, progressive production. And at seven, it's undeniable. You know, mm -hmm. so that's kind of the, the scale that I operate, operate around is the seven whys. I like that. But to change the subject now, or to ask your version of that first, I want to talk about the baseball um, game last night. Did you see it? Oh, <laughs> I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I saw like later on yeah. the highlights and the clips from it. Yeah. Dude, the, this is like the coolest tournament ever. Yeah. Well, they finally got like, some, some main players playing in it, you know, like. Well, and and, and I've been listening to a lot of guys. You know, I still listen to sports radio a lot. I listen to and I listen to baseball games on the radio when I drive. I love dude, that. I do too. Don Drysdale, baseball fifties and sixties. Radio baseball announcers are the best in the business. Yep. At broadcasting. Yep. The radio guys specifically, absolutely, because that, I mean that's Vin. Yeah, that's Vin Scully. Oh, dude, you know, like wordsmith. Yeah, 
of spent. I mean, think about all the dead time in a baseball game yep. that he would just paint word pictures mm-hmm. and they were hilarious and they were topical and like just to fill the 42 seconds between pitches. Mm-hmm. Like nobody did it like Vin. Um, we have Kaywood. The- Kaywood Lefford was that guy at UK basketball. You know, he, yeah. he was 50 years as the announcer, Harry Carey for yeah. the, for the Reds and then the Cubs, Yeah, you know, yeah. so it, they're, they're iconic. Why can't I think of the Mariners guy? Oh dude, he was a sad, who's a Don Cherry. Did you ever listen to him about hockey in Canada? No, he, you need to go to some Don Cherry clips on YouTube. Cause that dude, he, yeah. he got stuffed after September 11th. He was like, um, they asked him about what he thought about it on, on, on air. They asked him what he thought about 9-11, and he said, <laughs> he goes, well, he said, you get a battery, you take these terrorists, and he said, black's negative, red's positive, touch them nuts and light them up. <laughs> you know? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's Don Cherry. <laughs> but he's just, you know, those guys, um, it's just a different time. And I remember we used to watch basketball games, uh, UK basketball. We would mute the TV and put Kaywood Lefford on the radio and do it that way. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the baseball – so my son's playing right now. They just kicked off their season. And I, you know, you and I know, or have talked about Dave Niehaus. Yeah. That was the Mariners. Yep. one. <laughs> Sorry. No, man. it's all good, man. Um, <laughs> baseball is just such a different game than anything else. Defense controls the ball. It's a, it's a methodical situational game, unlike anything else. And that's why I fell in love with it. Plus I'm a stats, I'm a stats geek. And my dad got me a couple of books yeah. when I was a kid, like, you know, historical facts about baseball or statistic analysis of baseball. Like I'm, I'm a kid, nine, 10 years old and reading these books and looking at home run records and all the season records and the hit records and Pete Rose stuff and the Ty Cobb stuff and the Honus Wagner card and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, baseball just really captivated me for a number of reasons. Plus it's like you get into the Negro leagues and you look at some of those players, you get into Japanese Bob baseball Gibson. and you think, man, this guy had, 800 home runs this guy this guy (laughs) threw 240 pitches in a game you know it's like (laughs) but you know the japanese model of baseball is pretty interesting it's a lot like powerlifting in a sense or strength training in a sense they don't let their pitchers throw high velocity over 70 percent but they'll throw 500 pitches a day Mm. but like they start at your yeah you're 15 feet away i'm going to use my mechanics but I'm going to soft release the ball. It's all finger roll. Sure. There's no, yep. there's no velocity at, at, at all. They throw a hundred that way. They back up to 30 feet. They throw a hundred, they back up to 45 feet, they throw a hundred and then they're throwing 90 feet or whatever, you know, like, yeah, it, or whatever it is, it's 60 feet, but 60 and six, yeah. I think. So, but they do, they do those overextended throws like 90 feet at 50% and they track right. the velocity on everyone, little less, little more. So, but you look at the number of shoulder and Tommy John surgeries on their pitchers, zero. They don't yeah. throw high velocity until their games, and they never throw well. Now, and I that, bet they don't do it young. Either. I was going to say no, they do not. They do yeah. not at all, dude. We've got a kid here, um, local, absolute stud. He's had two Tommy Johns, and he's seventeen. Yeah, you know, like that's the that's the goal now, though, to bring him up and just get it done, get it out yeah. of the way, because then you're fine. Well, you pick up an extra mile an hour on your fastball. Your arm will never work right, but it's good. It's cool well, what's the guy? What's the young? What's the young one that um, that we had? Uh, why can't I think of his name? He had a hundred and one average. Oh yeah, on his fastballs in this tournament. Okay, average. Yeah, like that's Rolandis Chapman stuff. You know, that's 
unreal. Yeah. But this but this tournament, the the World Baseball Class has been so fun because mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah. Like I've heard a lot of the guys that were um and Jeff Passan is one of the baseball insiders that I really like. Yep. Uh does a lot of good reporting on stuff. He was talking about like the guys that are on the US team put this team together 6 days before the first their first game. Yeah. And and the Japanese team has been playing together. They play for in the Olympics together. Yep. Like they do everything, like kind of like soccer. Like yep. the same national team plays all the time. He's like, these guys have said that this is the most fun that they've had playing baseball since they were in high school. Yeah. Like, cause it feels like when baseball was fun again. And like watching the games, you would never imagine I mean, the like the Caribbean countries. And the South American countries, they are rabid baseball oh, fans. Oh, yeah. Fanatical. Like, Puerto Rico it is, is insane. Oh, and Venezuela yep. even. And like all of these are just wild games. And it makes it like so much fun. And like I'm watching them and they're hearing them talking about it. I'm like, man, that and and we're trying to put pitch clocks yeah. on stuff to make like what I heard somebody say on their, on a radio show. Let's do like, we can't make it fun. So we'll just make it fast. Well, th- like, yeah. you know, like, you know, in the U S well, that's what they're doing in high school now in, in Kentucky is they have a 22nd pinch count after the, after the toe on the rubber and the batter can never leave the box. Now they have to keep one foot in at all times. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you see a lot of these kids, right foot's planted. They step the left foot yeah. out of the box, adjust so the helmet. Better come back in but yeah it's to me that was you know chess is not a very exciting game to watch but the intricacy and the detail of chess is massive uh gi jiu-jitsu is not exactly the funnest thing to watch because it's very stationary and pinpoint precision but it takes a shit ton of 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 skill (laughs) to do that that to me has always been baseball you know uh my son played a travel tournament down in alabama and I can't remember the team, but they were a top two or three team out of Florida. And it's like Florida, California, Texas, those states ranking of baseball is like, mm-hmm. it's a different world in those states because they play year yeah. round, you know? Yep. And, um, but we were playing this team and oh my God, as a parent, as a competitor, myself, um, watching this, this kid comes out and it's like, if you know, you can't see this on YouTube, but it's like when a pitcher is just funneling through the pitches, he's flipping his glove around. He would do that for, like he would do it catch a pitch set up and he'd be like shake it off and he'd do it again he'd step, he just he'd wants step the one pitch off, every he'd time step off the rubber <laughs> but they were doing it intentionally because it was that deal where the games were 90 minutes and there was a cutoff yeah they were oh. up but we were starting to gain on them so for two innings they played just this, killing clock they, they played this crap but that is allowable in the game yeah. of baseball and a smart yeah. a smart manager will use everything they can to to expose the rules within the rules oh yeah you know and within the rules yeah. exactly so that's why all the that's why all and for all, all the drugs were fine for a while until they weren't yeah uh, you yeah. know it, like, yeah for sure and it's like it, it just it's a cool game because it is what it is and that's what i hate yeah. when they start trying that's why they didn't change baseball very much forever you know it's like yeah. they changed the balls around they changed some bat specifics you know of course the gloves and the cleats and all that evolved but the game stayed the same. Right. And I think that's why – I just think that's why I love it. Plus, I'm, being, I'm becoming an old man very rapidly. So, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, my uh, – like some of my earliest memories with my grandpa was like we'd go out to his house and he would just have Mariners games on mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. Like we, that was what we'd do. We'd sit down and watch. And that was when I was that age. When I was that age was when Ichiro oh, first came dude. to Seattle. 
And it was like, and he was, my grandpa couldn't get enough watching Ichiro. Dude, it they was, sold sushi and I get at the it. stadium. It was the best, man. They sold sushi yeah. at the stadium when he pitched. Yeah. Like it yes. changed the culture of baseball. Ichiro. Yes. Um, Hideo Nomo was first. Still, like still. Yeah, yeah. In, in, if you go back to Japan, wow. Ichiro's the, each, he's Michael Jordan. He is the most famous person yeah. in that country. Well, think about today. this, man. Like he played, I don't know, remember the years. It was eight, 10, 12 years or so. It might have been eight or ten, but anyway, he played in Japanese professional baseball for years, and then comes to America, plays another career in baseball, gets over three thousand hits. Like he missed the prime of his life in American baseball and still got three thousand hits. Yeah. You know, and if you look at it, if you look at his accumulative, he out he outpaced Pete Rose. So yeah, it, and and his arm from the, I mean that was just the most unbelievable. Like watching him throw from right field fence to third base on no hops yeah. and throw a dude out. Well, he he <laughs> like, and Vlad just unreal. He and Vlad Guerrero were in at the same time, and dude Vlad was yeah. that way. Uh, just had an yep. absolute cannon. Of course, I go back to my childhood. I remember watching Bo throw out Harold Reynolds at home plate yes. on a. Warm- I had lunch with Harold Reynolds once. Did you really? I would tell you that no. story. <laughs> we, not to interrupt, but I was no, like, go I always it. tell that story because it's fun. Uh, we, uh, a buddy of mine, my best friend and I got invited to a, like a, he was a quarterback in high school. He got invited to a quarterback only mm-hmm. camp down in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got to bring two receivers with him to come to the camp. And so me and another friend, so the three of us went down there. We went down with his older brother, flew down there. Like we were 17, went with his older brother, like no parents with us for the first time or whatever. We're at this camp. Yeah. And uh, there's guys from all over the country are there at this quarterback camp to get extra work. Cause I think it was, it was Jeff tricky quarterback. Camp. Oh, Jeff tricky. And, yeah. And uh, so we went out there in Pasadena and Harold Reynolds nephew was at the camp. Mm. So here's, this was, this was like my first exposure to famous people ever. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of wild on who was there. So Harold Reynolds nephew was there. Mm-hmm. Wayne Gretzky's son was there. Snoop Dogg's son spank was there. <laughs> <laughs> Spank dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh and then there was a couple other and oh and well uh Matt Barkley mm-hmm. who he played for USC and then went and he had a couple uh he was he was right after Leinert, I think, at USC was the Matt Barkley years. Um but there was these guys, I mean they were just unreal players and yeah. like the, us us three little like Southern Idaho farmer boys show up and like, we're like, well, this is pretty cool. Yep. Like we're getting, and and we're catching passes from these guys. And I'll tell you, I've never caught a ball that was thrown harder in my life than the ball that Matt Barkley threw. Really? Like I did a four yard slant from like the very edge of the numbers and he threw it and it turned around and it stopped my heart. Yeah. Like it, it zipped straight, like the, the tip of the football right in the middle of my sternum. Yeah. And I caught it because I wasn't going to not catch a ball at this thing. I'm like, I can't go down here and be dropping balls. <laughs> and so I catch it and I literally like almost wanted to black out because it stopped my heart. Yep. And, but we went to, uh, to get back to the story. So um, our friend's older brother who was there watching us was sitting up. Mm-hmm. in the in the little stands or whatever watching and just starts hanging out with Harold Reynolds all day because he's there watching his nephew. Yeah. And so they strike up a conversation. They're talking and stuff. And after the first day, he's like, hey, you guys want to go get some lunch or whatever? So he took us to like this little sandwich shop and we chatted with him for like, I don't know, we were there for like an hour. He bought us lunch. And then he found out that my friend that was the quarterback was also a baseball player. And uh, and actually, the, my other two friends were both baseball players. And 
he sent him all a bunch of his instructional DVDs. Oh. Like he's like, give me guys' address. When we get when you guys get home, I'll have a box of stuff sent to you, like catching DVDs and all this kind of stuff. And he sent them all to him. That's awesome. Like that was pretty rad. He was a super cool. Do you remember the Tom Amansky drills? The the did you ever see that video set? It was with I don't know Fred McGriff was on there. But that was like every Saturday morning I would see Kings Island commercials and Tom Amansky baseball skill set commercials. <laughs> nice. And uh a similar sit similar situation i was at uh disney world with sornex one time there was a conference there strength conference and yeah. they also had a show out football camp there well dion was there and, oh. and he was being dion like he was in it he was in his element and uh i was does he ever not dion for sure though? but like, i dude i was like i was jacked <laughs> as hell at that time i was like 320 oh, 330 yeah. and he said my god get this man some pads and I said, Coach, I, I said, I'd love to play, but I got bad knees. He, he looked at me, and I showed him my knee. He said, that ain't going to work. Get on out of here. I said, get on out of here. <laughs> but he came back around. He was laughing and stuff. But, it, you know, it was a 30-second interaction, but he was super funny, yeah. super nice. I've actually awesome. I've gained a lot of respect for him over the years, um, especially now that he's in college football and what he was doing down at Jackson State. Yeah, You know, the uh, – dude, I, I don't know – I'll say this as much as I've bitched about social media on, uh, on this podcast, he is somebody that has taken it into a forum where I would almost think it would be taboo, you know, like, you know, mm. kind of like when Louie started putting his information out, he was the yeah. first guy in powerlifting to like really start pushing the secrets. Well, yeah. You know, you, got, you take Dion, he's like, I got this tool that can reach more kids 18 to 22 than anything else. I know how. I can't have recruiters yep. in every city and every school. So I'm going to yeah. use this, this forum and I'm going to show you what we do. I'm going to show you that it's fun, that it's family oriented, that it is uh, motivational, that it is driven by a, a purpose, a vision. And he's got unorthodox measures, but I, I, I talked to his strength coach. I talked to athletes that played for him at, at Jackson state. Those dudes would run through hell and gas soaked jeans for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and as a coach, and here's the other thing. And to go all the way back to imposter syndrome, that is yeah. a dude that gains belief because he did it. Yes. He was not an imposter. He's not a 70-year-old white man standing up there saying, run them hard, boys. Run them hard. <laughs> right. You know, he's <laughs> right. like, if you want to get to the league, this is what you're going to have to do. And I can tell you, yep. I played with men like you and I beat you. You know, he's like, and I made it to both leagues. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but so it was him, Bo and Brian Jordan, him and Brian Jordan were on the Falcons right. and the Braves together. Did you know that? That's crazy. I didn't know yeah. that. Brian Jordan was a, he's a hell of a baseball player, uh, probably a better baseball player than football, but him and Dion did it together. And, um, there, there might've been a little difference in time, but I think there was a year or two, they overlapped. Mm -hmm. And then of course, Bo, you know, I mean, Bo was God when I was a kid. I cried Best. like a bitch when he got hurt by the Bengals. You yeah. know, I love the Bengals, but I love Bo Jackson more. And I'm watching this game, dude. I had on the Raiders jersey. I had on the Raiders uh, the all black Bo Jackson shoes, and I'm sitting there just like happy as could be. And when I watched him fall, dude, I cried forever. But I can tell you, when I cried more, um, I was a big White Sox fan, and he came back and played for the White Sox. His first at bat um, after he got hurt, he promised his mother that he would come back. He's like, I'm going to come back. And she passed yeah. away before that game. And before the game, he said, I'm just dedicating this promise to my mom. And then he just drives, he hits a bomb. I mean, the doctors told him yeah. he would never walk correctly again, let alone ever play yeah. a sport. 
And right. um, he hits a home run his first hit. And then and actually had another couple of years in the league at, at a pretty high level. I mean, he wasn't Bo of, of pre-injury, but he was definitely right. qualified. I saw a study on him. Still better than probably half the oh, league yeah. anyways. <laughs> but I saw I saw a study on his uh, leg velocity. They were using a – this was a platform, um, kind of like the the jump thing where they, it measures your velocity through the floor. Similar thing. But they said that his was like the equivalent. Uh, I don't remember the animal. It wasn't a horse, but it was like it was off the scale of what a human it wasn't a human. Yeah, it was like <laughs> this is not actually humanly possible. Yeah. And he changed the metric on on human measurement in that yeah. in that plane was just his ability to drive velocity through the ground. And I, I don't know, man. I've I've just become more recently like. Gordon Ryan was probably a big motivator in this direction because I was watching a lot of jujitsu. I was watching a lot of his instructionals and it reinvigorated that level of expertise and dominance. Like I, yeah. I remember lo- like when Tyson in 85, 86, 87, 88, like before Buster Douglas, like he was terrifying because we bought the pay-per-views. My papa would buy every pay-per-view and then cuss the screen when it was over in the first round. <laughs> but that's why you bought it. If it went to the third right. round, you're like, what the hell's wrong with Tyson? You know, right. You were looking for that level of dominance and I've, I've gone back through some rabbit holes, dude. I was watching, um, George Foreman videos from the sixties. Yeah. Holy shit. Like, yeah, holy shit. So some of these guys, man, at that level and, and to look at some of these people that really do have imposter syndrome, like the, I see, I'll see red guys when it comes to fighting, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, <laughs> It's just at that level, man. They don't know me, man. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know where I go, bro. They don't know where I go inside. Um, but even you know, I've seen some high level grappling. I've seen some definitely high level fighting. Um, but you take a black belt in any local gym that has got merit for their their belting system, that black belt will look to a white belt that good. So to understand right. that in a gym in somewhere wherever that black belt is that far above his competition. And then you go to Gordon Ryan, who would make that black belt look like a white belt. Look like a white belt. <laughs> it, it's just incredible, that level of, yeah. of expertise and dominance. Like, I I absolutely, I wouldn't say obsess about it, but, like, from a standpoint of emulation, yeah, I look at guys like that to figure out, okay, what's what's their separator? What are they doing that's, that's like, a little different? And to bring this whole thing, my whole thought process full circle – that has been highly beneficial. But when I yeah. trained with Chuck, Chuck Vogelpohl at, at Westside, I did everything he did. Same weights, same reps, same sets, and I got worse. Mm. Okay? Because those were the models that Chuck needed to progress. I should have trained right. lighter on certain things. I should have trained, trained heavier on certain things. I should have done more reps on certain things, and I should have done fewer reps on certain things. But because I wanted to be like Chuck, I, you know, hell, I even started wrapping my knees in the same sequence that he wrapped is you know <laughs> yeah. just to see if those things were the separate markers that's that's just testing but if you stay in that lane because that's what he's doing and you think okay all the feedback says this doesn't work but because i like him as a competitor i'm going to keep doing these things you rob yourself of the competition that, or the competitor that you can become you know yeah. and uh so that's that's just the thing man i've always admired excellence i've always tried to strive for excellence but it was the excellence at a level of how I wanted to pursue it um, while observing people who had done it. And um, I think that's a, that's kind of a weird wrap up point for me on that topic, but I think that's the truth of it. It just, 
you have to learn from experience, but you can't fake your own experience. You right. Know? Exactly. My wrap up point will be this to tie back to funny broadcasters. Perfect. Have you ever listened to Randy Moeller? Yeah. He's the Florida, the Florida Panthers. Yep. Guy, yep. I love. <laughs> so hockey. if you haven't, dude, I love. Oh, I love. If hockey, you so. if, if you're listening and you haven't listened to Randy Moeller goal calls, <laughs> go on YouTube and there's a bunch of them. He literally will. He's the most animated, but he will throw it, in movie lines yep. into the end of his goal calls that have nothing to do with anything. And there's like compilation videos of all of them. And my favorite one ever was the oh, what's the the hostage video with Harrison Ford where they take, where they take his son. Oh, oh God. Uh, not clear present danger. Um, why can't it? I can't think of it either, but they has the goal call and he goes, call, give me back my son. <laughs> <laughs> like that. But he has like all of them. They're so great. The best, so, the best you- sports broadcaster though is Bob Mennery. Oh, pff. Man, he is just – I can't believe he doesn't do it for real. I, mean, I can't like he believe, does, I can't he believe the team hasn't hired him to do it for real. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like he is legitimately awesome, <laughs> but he carved out this lane of being super hilarious and inappropriate. So it's like I get it, but he, have you seen the videos of when him and Joe Buck are together? Yeah, dude. Like they know each other, and he'll they'll just go back and forth. It's so funny. Man. I love when he comments on Little League. Holy shit, this pitcher sucks. <laughs> what the hell's wrong with this kid? Yeah. <laughs> Got a little too tipsy so on Coca-Cola good. at the sleepover last night. So good. <laughs> oh, man. All right, we'll call it there. That was a funny place to wrap That's it, all so. good, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. See you guys later. Thanks a lot, guys. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got-